Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's show, bodies piled high in their thousands. That's what Boris Johnson said he would prefer to a third lockdown, according to the latest leaks to spew out of the broken reactor that is Johnson versus Dominic Cummings. The revelations are by turns revolting, comical, banal and terrifying. But are we looking at the right aspects of the revenge of the Dom? Plus, in a week when the Premier League has decided to boycott social media in its entirety because of racist abuse of players, should anonymity on the internet be banned? And are topical quiz shows to blame for eroding our democracy? Two points for the right answer. All that and more on today's bunker. Welcome to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker, and let's meet today's panel. Hello. First, it's Ian Dunt, uh, editor-at-large of politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hello. It's uh, it's Gala Classic Dom Week, but first, I mean, before that, we've, we've got to mention the horrific and worsening situation in India. They registered a world record of 353,000 new COVID cases on Monday. How has this happened? I mean, there, there are enough examples in the world of what happens when you allow massive mingling events to happen without any restriction. Yeah, I mean, the answer is that we don't know. One explanation, in all likelihood, is all of these things. One explanation is that it's it's possible that the variant, the B one six one seven, which has two separate mutations on it, could be to blame. So one of those mutations is about increased infectiousness, and the other, possibly, but we don't know. This is like early studies that seem to suggest it. The timing and the geographical spacing of the infection rise seem to suggest it could also, there's a chance that it can get out from underneath the vaccine, that it's changed its coat in a way that means that antibodies don't recognize it. However, there are also other explanations, which could be in addition or instead of. I mean, one of them is this Kumala, um, the massive Hindu festival that we now know was a super spreader event that was allowed to go ahead by the government. Another one is Modi. Modi, this c- catastrophic nationalist buffoon who has been encouraging you know, large turnouts for the elections over and over and who has failed to take the sort of strategic steps he would need to put in place the infrastructure to deal with this pandemic. Because it was uh, when he had that lull, really in between February and, and uh, a bigger part of um, between sort of at least October, possibly earlier, and the current outbreak that we're seeing now. So it's probably a combination of these things. The one from outside of India that you most worry about is obviously the variant. But regardless of what went on with the variant, certainly government mismanagement is part of it as well. Also joining us, we have Times Radio host and recovering new Labour spin doctor, Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. Hello. Hello. And uh, as if there isn't enough grim news this week, we're really starting this week on a high. Just before we started recording, it emerged that Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe is going to be jailed for a further year in Iran for spreading propaganda. And the spreading propaganda, uh, apparently, it's because she attended a demo in London 12 years ago. This is infuriating and it's you know your your heart absolutely goes out to her how could it be justified for somebody to be jailed for something they did in another country well it can i mean there is no justification for this and um the uh, you know iranian authorities are just behaving in a way which is just so beyond cruel because the mental anguish that she and her family are going through, you know, they, they keep getting dangled the possibility of freedom and then it's taken away. And, you know, it's now been elected. I mean, we know that there's this big debt that the UK has admitted that it does owe to um, the Iranians. So that's one leg of the story. 
Then the second leg of the story is that there's the whole nuclear proliferation stuff, which is also ongoing. And people are saying that, again, she's been used as a pawn um, in, in all of this. It is absolutely horrific. And I've spoken to her sister-in-law on my programme. And also I've spoken on quite a regular basis to her legal team who are keeping us updated. And what's so harrowing is that she hasn't really got proper legal representation out there. You know, she hasn't really got anybody that can really support her. She's very, very alone. And she's basically been used for bigger political purposes. Why are we not referring to her as a hostage? Because it seems to be that's what she is. I really, really don't know. And of course, you know, the, the Prime Minister has put his foot in it massively in terms of his own sort of intervention. Although having spoken to her lawyers and, and the family, they do say that they are in contact with Dominic Raab a lot. They are in contact with, with the Foreign Office. I mean, there is an argument that, you know, perhaps the government should just agree to settle this um, debt. But then you mentioned the hostage word. And Mm. I spoke to Baroness um, Pauline Neville Jones, and she said, we never negotiate on hostages. Like that's something that the British government has a policy of doing. So maybe that's why they're not calling her hostage. I don't know. But the whole thing, I mean, it's just so mentally cruel for her and her family. Just horrific, horrific. We're delighted to be joined this week by the author, screenwriter, celebrity MasterChef winner, actor, Lego fiend, and former Lib Dem candidate for Surrey Heath. Is there anything she can't do? It's Emma Kennedy. Hello, yeah, Emma. I'm, I'm really, really bad at swimming. Oh, right, okay, fair enough. So, you know, in terms of things that I can't do, please never ask me to front crawl in front of a crowd. It's, it'll, it's horrific. And you've also got a new book out, The Never-Ending Summer, so I have, just, yes. you know, continuing to rack up the, the achievements here. Welcome to The Bunker. I have to ask you, what, what did you make of the anti-lockdown march in London at the weekend, and especially the immensely tasteful and uh, perceptive people who decided to wear yellow stars with COVID well, on them? I mean, you, you know, it, it, it's, it's very hard not, not to feel absolutely disgusted by every single person that took part in it. And and I think the people who wore the, the yellow stars of David were just displaying the most extraordinary levels of ignorance and insensitivity. And if they genuinely think that sometimes having to wear a mask to go into a supermarket is on any in any way the same as being sent to concentration camps and murdered and genocide, then they really, really need to... I mean, I don't, I don't, know, I don't even know where to start with, with that yeah. sort of basic ignorance. It's just extraordinary. It is the metastasizing of the think about it, yeah. You know, the idea, I've said something incredibly ridiculous here, but it means <laughs> the fact that it's making you angry validates it. And there were banners seen. I mean, I didn't go to this thing. Who would go to this thing? We see the pictures. There were banners citing, you know, paedophile conspiracies and the harvesting of adrenochrome and all this completely batshit I mean, out there stuff. Yeah, I mean, it turned out, I think someone wrote an article about it, and I'm sorry I can't remember who, but they were saying that a lot, looking at a lot of the Facebook pages and the social media pages where these people were organising this event, a lot of the people involved are also sort of very much into conspiracy theories. There was a woman yesterday who was a former BBC and ITV reporter who was who whose little clip went viral of she she chatted to a load of women who were all in yellow. I did that thing that that you do sometimes of of when when someone so sort of appalled you. I don't know if you do this. You go and have a quick look at their timeline. <laughs> you ever do this? It's sort of mild Twitter stalking. 
And it was just all the usual suspects of, of weird conspiracy theories of, you know, the vaccine is, is mucking with your feet 5G and, and the whole thing about paedophile, paedophile, VIP paedophile rings. And yeah. it's, it's just like, what, what, what has gone wrong? What has gone wrong with our society whereby these crazy ideas have been allowed to take hold and not just take hold in, in people who who you would pre previously sort of you know expect it to take hold in, but in people who who ostensibly seem completely sensible. The Dom versus Downing Street circus gets uglier and uglier, especially with this morning's front page of the Mail saying the Prime Minister would rather see bodies pile high in their thousands than order a third lockdown. What started out with David Cameron and Greensill, then text from James Dyson, is now spiralling out of control. Ian, the Mail has been supportive of Johnson almost unequivocally for, for a long time, uh, but these you know allegations about that particular revolting quote have now been backed up by several other sources. What's happening here? Are we seeing something fall into pieces here? On the mail thing, I mean, you know, the, lots of the most damaging stories recently have been coming out in the mail, including on the relationship with uh, sort of the Saudi crown prince and the blackmailing of the football club. And in fact, on the Downing Street refurbishment. So, the, I mean, lots of the leaking is, is going through to the mail. And like you say, this has now been justified. I mean, look, my main, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. My main emotional response to all of this is hilarity and joy. Um, and and <laughs> I, I can't, like, there's enough, there's so little reason to be to feel sort of remotely happy with what's going on in the news as a liberal right now, that if I see these two, like, disastrous human catastrophes just smashing against each other in a way that I think can only damage the two of them, it does bring me a profound amount of, of joy. The quote itself, it's possible, and there's this kind of flirty illusion that Cummings is doing about whether he's got, you know, audio files to back this up. On, on the assumption that those do not sort of end up coming forward, the quote itself is either the kind of thing that Johnson would say and therefore true, or the kind of thing that a really quite good liar, like, oh, I don't know, like Dominic Cummings, uh, would construct because it sounds intuitively like the kind of thing that Boris Johnson would say. So it's quite hard just on the basis of that, even with what we have coming forward today, to be absolutely certain that, that it is true. But then there's sort of something to conclude, right, from the fact that the Prime Minister would fucking say that in the first place. Because or no think matter that how, in the first place. Well, I mean, you know, think about Theresa May, right? It's not like I was any fan of Theresa May. She was like a, a dreadful, dreadful Prime Minister. And then think about David Cameron, another appalling Prime Minister. And yet, if anyone, was to give you that quote from them and go, oh, they said this, you'd know instantly that that was not true, that there is no capacity, there is no location, no time and no situation which Theresa May would ever say such a thing. And yet when they said about Boris Johnson, you're like, yeah, it could definitely be true. And that in itself seems to me just a, a statement, probably not one that the audience of this podcast needs to hear, but one that is worth repeating anyway, that he is obviously unfit for office. I mean, are we looking at the right stuff here, though? I mean, the attempts to focus attention on who's, who's making the leaks here. And here's this horrible quote, when in fact, the real thing that's going on is, if we are to believe Cummings's blog, Johnson has probably broken the law on at least one case, certainly broken the ministerial code in two cases. And not only is nothing happening, nobody's talking about it. They're talking about who's the bloody chatty rat. I don't know about that, man. I mean, I feel like the last sort of two, three weeks have just been this relentless drip feed of stories about Johnson. I, I feel like they, they are getting the coverage, but there's always, you know, we've talked about this before that you can have as many, you can have as many procurement scandals as you want and people won't pay attention. But if you come up with big 
primary color, emotionally affecting, easily understood stories like this, then actually that can get an awful lot of traction very quickly. And it doesn't do that in isolation, right? It does it because it comes on top of this mountain of drip feeding reports and scandals and misbehavior. So, I mean, it, you know, I, I wouldn't get too hung up on it if we're focusing on the right things. It seems to me that we're focusing on all the all the right things at the same time. And it all speaks to a, to a really fundamental truth about the kind of man that he is. In this um, Alien versus Predator, Godzilla versus Mothra, Johnson versus Cummings caper here, there is a third participant, isn't there? There is, because the, the male story paints Michael Michael Goh very much as the voice of reason, who pops up, you know, calling for a second lockdown. Ooh, I wonder where long- the story came from. <laughs> that's, that's where I'm going with it. Don't, don't tread on my punchline, Aisha. That's where I'm going with it. I mean, is this all, is this all coming from Pop? Well, we don't know. And like, well, they say, you know, you say, you say things like, um, a source coast to go. A source coast, I mean, you know, Cummings used to Sarah work Vine. for Gove. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe that. But I mean, Cummings used to work for Gove. So I mean, we don't look, and ultimately, you know, it's a, it's a battle between people who are habitually lying. So it's a war of lies between two rival factions of liars. And on that basis, you know, and a briefing war. So it's, you're, you're in a state where you never really know where anything's coming from. I do think it was instructive. Look, I mean, Michael Gove is currently, as we record this in the Commons, um, addressing this stuff. I saw sort of about half an hour of it before we started recording. So something may have changed in the second half hour. But in the first half hour, what was interesting is it came up, the story about the piles of body quote. And instead of just saying that did not take place, that is wrong, as has been said by Downing Street, he sort of sidestepped it. He sort of said, well, she's referring to um, a line in a newspaper, which isn't, you know, which isn't going in there, absolutely refuting it. Now, he's doing the rest of the job for the government, but I thought it was quite noticeable that he didn't go in as hard on that as we might have expected him to do, at least for appearances. sake. Well, additional sources are coming up by the minutes, aren't they? Well, that what well, did you think that that might be though? Because I, like about half an hour ago, the BBC confirmed that 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 is what Boris Johnson had said. So, and I can't imagine they would do that unless they had multiple sources confirming it. And it may yeah. well. And and I've I've sort of seen during the course of the afternoon that that some Tory MPs have gone from saying no, this is an outright lie, to going well, of course he would say that. Yeah, well, just from my olden days of being a, a kind of government spin doctor, what's really interesting is that Ian's right. If you're going to categorically deny something, you say outright, this is absolute bollocks, rubbish. None of this is true. And it is interesting that the language, it is interesting that Gove has not completely sort of d- done that. You know, I, I just kind of, there's so many things where if you just really sort of look closely, you just think they haven't quite denied this, like, you know, Liz Truss on, on doing the, the, the Sunday round, um, for, for example. But what I do think is interesting is, I, I mean, we, we'll probably come on to this, but it's just how much of this is going to, to, to cut through. It's going to be fascinating to see if it has any impact, for example, on Hartlepool, which is going to be a really interesting test for everybody, for both Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson. Yeah, I mean, will it play in Hartlepool? Is the new does it play in Peoria, isn't it? <laughs> um, Emma, um, obviously George R. R. Martin is publishing The War of Liars in the summer based on this entire event. But, you know, the male story quotes an ally saying that number 10 are mad to pick a fight with Cummings because he will be able to back up a lot of his claims. He's supposed to have these tapes, like it's yes. 1983 and it's like reel to reel, lives of others. <laughs> the one thing that we know is that Boris Johnson started this. He yes. rang around, personally yes. briefing. Yes. Against, he, why would you do this? He's, he's literally like the little boy 
that is standing in front of a massive great hornet's nest, perhaps the biggest hornet's nest in the world, and he's mm. decided to thrust his fist into it. But but this, I just think that the whole thing just goes towards showing what what terrible lack of judgment Boris Johnson has. You know, he, mm. sh- he shouldn't have brought Dominic Cummings into number 10 in the first place. He was warned about bringing Dominic Cummings into number 10. Um, it's interesting, the, the one little nugget from the, the article in the Times it, that alleges, and if this is true, it's, it's sort of like bombshell material. But if it is true that Dominic Cummings is worried that he might go to jail because of illegality that, that, that they indulged in over the Brexit referendum. This is the, the added stupidity of Boris Johnson, is that everyone had forgotten about that. that. That had sort of gone away and been swept under the carpet. And now here it comes, rushing back. And if Dominic Cummings is genuinely worried that he is in in improper peril because of any illegality over the Brexit referendum, then you can absolutely join the dots and see that he's not going to go down without taking down Boris Johnson and quite possibly Michael Gove with him. It's been quite fascinating as well to see Carol Cadwallader saying, remember this story that we broke, me and Shemi Hassani broke this story and none of you paid any attention. And suddenly, you know, the deletion of files from Vote, Vote Leave's own Google Drive, mm. it's kind of back in the air right now. Yeah. And that didn't need to happen. But can any of you, I don't know this, what is the thing that made Boris Johnson decide in the ringing words of the Times to finger Dominic Cummings for this? He's an idiot. It is, literally, it, it is literally no more complicated than that. The man hasn't got a scrap of judgment. He's just, mm. he, he, he is a man who has taken revenge on people all his grown-up life. And this is what he does. It's like, oh, no, let's, let, let, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stitch you up now because you stitched me up. And this is this is all we're seeing is just an extension of what he probably did when he was at school. The thing we people like us who listen to the podcasts like this and move in the worlds that we move in, the thing we find hardest to accept is that the reasons we despise Boris Johnson are actually the reasons lots of people like him. Yeah, no, yeah. it's the he same with Nigel, it's the same the, with Nigel Farage. Yeah, he he doesn't care about anybody Their else. He's simply self-serving. Yeah, yeah. He's a, a, an odious individual and they like that. And that's mm. very hard to compute. We've got to have two minutes on the, the interior design in the flat. This Lulu Little stuff, this kind of, mm. you know, gold wallpaper, this, this, it's like, Banana Republic opulence. Can I just start by saying on this, I can't believe Carrie Simmons or whoever it was said, oh, it was all full of ghastly John Lewis stuff. I love, I would do anything to have a flat decked out in John Lewis stuff. Well, I, I, I have things to say about Carrie Simmons' taste. And, Go on, and, and it's and 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 it's not and I'm afraid I'm going to be quite brutal here, so apologies in advance. But I, I think her interior design choices are precisely the choices that would be made by a middle-class person who's desperate to be upper-class. Emma! That's cruel stuff, that. Thank you. (sighs) Brutal. It's brutal. Police. But you know know it's true. It's brutal. I thought you were going to say that her taste in decor might be similar to her taste in men. Oh. (laughs) What, gaudy and over-expensive and uh, and an absolute sight. Extremely messy. That you'd be ashamed to be like, the, the thing that just struck me is how much it looks like, you know, a version of dictator chic. 
you know, just yes. a lot of gold, a lot of gold yeah. and fanciness. Yeah, kind of thing. yeah, yeah. It's the it's the home county version of Trump Tower, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah. So, sorry, sorry, Idi Amin. Anyway. Yeah. Is there a water feature? I just hope there's a water feature somewhere in there. <laughs> no, let's let let's really hope there's not a water feature. <laughs> Ian, before we move on, uh, Classic Dom's got an appointment with uh, the committees. He wants to talk to them now. Now he'll talk to them. Are you uh, putting 26th of May in your diary? What, what are you expecting from uh, Dom meets the committees? Well, it sort of feels a bit like that's becoming less and less important by the day because he is firing a machine gun at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at this rate of newsiness i'm not entirely sure there's gonna be that many bullets left by the time we get there so you've just invented a new word newsiness the too much <laughs> newsiness to deal with so you the think it might not actually get that far that it does raise the question which you were talking about a little bit before we began recording if for instance this is not the middle of the boris johnson reign but perhaps closer to the end than we thought does michael go just get ushered in or will they be installing rishi sunak no, no, I mean, no this, this kind of thing makes me feel a bit like, you know, when we're talking about the royals, usually when we're on, oh, God, what now? It's basically everyone ganging up on me and telling me the royals are shit. So usually when that conversation happens, it's like every time something bad happens to the royals, people go, well, is that it for the royals? And I always think, well, that's just not the right attitude. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not going to be the flip over. And I, and, I, and I feel the same way about it. This is nothing like when I, people have been, every time there's any problem with Boris Johnson, you know, they're suddenly like, right, that's it. It's nearly over. You know, they're all going to take him. And I just don't think we're anywhere near it. The question to ask is, is any of this doing irreparable damage to that image? And that's the thing. It's just just like they've both been saying, really, of just, you know, you're looking for each story and you see, will that hurt him? Will that hurt him? Will that hurt him? Now, now it's particularly interesting, I think, because we've got this sort of, we've got the drip feed of serious stories in the background. And then we've got the primary color stuff cutting away in the foreground. And that combination with the advantage of elections about to take place in a couple of weeks gives us a pretty good test case of, you know, is this the kind of stuff that can hurt him? And I think right now you wouldn't want to be too bullish about him, but there are reasons to feel a bit more confident that maybe some of this stuff can do him some proper damage. But I think that's I think that's absolutely right. The, the but, though, is because, as we already said, there's a lot of people who just really love Boris yeah, Johnson. Yeah. I mean, there was an interesting poll that came out in Scotland, which is um, uh, Boris Johnson is even more popular than Alex Salmon in Scotland right now, which probably is a measure of how unpopular <laughs> Alex Salmon is <laughs> right now. But put that aside. However, the interesting thing about the timing, you, the timing you put to Ian about this appearance for the select committee from Dominic Cummings if Boris Johnson does have a really good set of local election results, which is quite unusual for an incumbent government, normally local elections are a really good chance to give the government a kicking. Normally opposition parties do quite well, particularly you know, the main opposition party does quite well. It doesn't look like that is going to happen. Let's see. So if he manages to buck that trend, I think he will. he's going to be feeling so confident after that. And the other thing which is important about that is up until this point, all of us can see with legitimacy, he's there because Dominic Cummings put him there. Dominic Cummings helped him win Brexit. That helped him become leader of the Conservative Party. That helped him become Prime Minister. And Dominic Cummings helped him get Brexit done and win that huge landslide victory. If he's able to now have a set of elections that he's won on his own whilst going to war with Dominic Cummings, 
that is going to really solidify his position. Just look at Nicola Sturgeon and the row that she, the mother of all rows she had with Alex Salmon. We all thought she was going to get spanked in this election by Alex Salmon. He's nowhere. And she's actually looking much stronger. So just bear that in mind. This is all incredibly exciting for us right now. But if he comes through, vaccine rollout's going so, so well compared to other countries. The sun is shining. I know a lot of people haven't had money. A lot of people have had money from Rishi Sunak. So, you know, there is still quite a good feel-good factor um, out there. And if he can get through these local elections and do reasonably well, then I'm afraid it's going to be very good for him. Yes, that's depressing and very convincing, which is the worst combination of things. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm expecting the Tories to do well simply because they've been paying most people's wages and and because of the vaccine rollout. This is the weird thing for me is that it feels like these local elections aren't necessarily a, a great big thumbs up to Boris Johnson. It's just this is where we are. So, you know, but I think if we were having them in a year from now, we might be feeling very differently, but we yeah. shall see. It's, it, did, did you notice in the Observer the, this week, there was a very small little story about Cornish fishermen um, yes. who who felt very let down by by the government and by Brexit. And I, I think it, it will be, ve- and, and those communities are probably the, the first communities in the country who are actually experiencing the immediate after effects of Brexit. And I think it will be very interesting in this local election to see how those communities are voting. It's going to be like gout. It starts in the foot and then works its way. <laughs> <laughs> Premier League, English Football League and Women's Super League clubs have all announced they're going to be boycotting all social media platforms in protest against the online racism, misogyny and abuse that's gone unpunished for years now. It's a four-day boycott. Social media is now sadly a regular vessel for toxic abuse, says Sanjay Bandari of the anti-discrimination charity Kick It Out. A big part of the reason for that is that you can say anything online and never be traced, which has led to calls to end anonymity online and make all identities verifiable and clear. Is this a good idea? Over the next few weeks on the podcast, we're going to be asking experts to bring us their wild ideas of how to make big changes in society. Alex Krasadomsky-Jones researches social media use and privacy, and he thinks there's more to the issue than just banning anonymity online. Hi, my name's Alex Krasadomsky-Jones. I'm director of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at the think tank Demos. So my wild idea is to see a public service identity verifier for internet users in the UK in an attempt to give greater control to people over who knows what about them. The internet, as we use it uh, every day now, is watching us. Everywhere we go, every website that we try to log into probably wants to know something about us. All of that information is being held by a pretty opaque group of technology companies, sometimes government, sometimes advertising, brokers and brokerages. Uh, And actually, you know, people like you and I, we probably don't know half of what companies around the internet know about us. And that doesn't feel like a, a pretty good way for the internet to run. And so what we're looking to do is to try to give users a bit more control over that. The grand idea, flawed as it might be, is to put all of that data into the hands of a not-for-profit organization in the UK, perhaps something like the BBC, where it is not in the hands of government, but it's also not in the hands of the Facebooks and the Googles. One of the major debates raging at the moment is around online anonymity. And 
it's really come to the fore on the back of some of the worst of the online harms that we're starting to see taking place on the internet. Perhaps that is uh, illegal activity around the exploitation of children, for instance, or the abuse that high-profile individuals, be they black and minority ethnic footballers or be they politicians, uh, are receiving through social media platforms like Twitter or like Instagram. And the solution to this that we sort of read in the headlines is, is that we need to ban anonymity because anonymity is the cause of this abuse. My worry is that that is neither a good diagnosis of what is causing this, this kind of online harm, nor would banning anonymity really solve the problem that we're trying to solve. This is not a question of banning anonymity. It's a question of redesigning our online spaces to make them healthier, better, to protect their users better. And there are lots and lots of ways that we can make spaces that we use every day on the internet healthier without resorting to banning anonymity, which is a fundamental requirement for a liberal democracy. I would suggest four possible ways forward. One would be to increase the friction. It shouldn't be the case that I can, at the drop of a hat, make a new social media account and immediately send a message to Marcus Rashford. That seems like it's too. A second way might be to to introduce some kind of reputation score. I might not know who you are. I know that a, a hundred other users have suggested that the things that you say are helpful or supportive. Another is purpose. If you ask people why they're on a major social media platform like Instagram, actually the answer is is not always that clear. And the parts of Instagram where there is a sense of purpose, then actually the the space does become healthier as well. I guess lastly is interdependence. So can we build a situation where users of a platform rely on one another? How far do you need another user on Twitter, on Facebook? In a space like Wikipedia, we need the editors. Now, all of these places that I've mentioned they tend to be at least open to the idea that these interactions can happen anonymously. So they do seem to sort of strike that balance between the two. Aisha, you're online an awful lot. And, and you're right. a woman of colour. a bit judgy. No, no, it's good. <laughs> no, aren't we all? You're online a lot. You have to. It's your, it, it is your job. And, you know, as a woman of colour, you have a particular experience of this. What has been your experience of the anonymous tweeter and, you know, the fake profile and Barry Chelsea 275134? Well, I think if I'm being honest, I get so much abuse. Some of it is completely named. Some people are happy to abuse me in their in their full like character. I'm just trying to get you to read the script. Um, I mean, I, but I'm just being honest. So, I mean, I get a lot of people who are happy to abuse me and be honest about it. Of course, I do get a, a ton of abuse from people with an anonymous profiles, but. I don't know. I think I think the anonymity argument is is interesting. I think it probably would stop some of it, but as I said, I, I think a lot of people feel incredibly emboldened. I think, you know, I got a um, really horrible. Uh, I did Question Time the other week, and I got a very very like bordering on a sort of horrible physical threat, and the person sent it to me on Facebook with their full profile, not hidden at all. Mm. So I think a lot of people are, I think we've got a level of toxicity right now that a lot of people don't even feel they need to be anonymous to to give you a death threat or a rape threat or that kind of thing anymore, which is, I mean, how depressing is that? I mean, a lot of the kind of anecdotal uh, evidence has been that many, particularly the kind of racist abuse of footballers, it's often tracked down to stupid kids who will just you know dive in for all the you know the uh, the horrible reasons kids do stupid things but that that you know without 
any fear of comeback because their name's not attached. They fear that there, there can't be any consequences. Do you think that you know banning anonymity or having people's having people use transparent names would affect that at all? I think it could do. And the point about kids is is interesting. There is, however, another argument that there are some people, particularly very marginalised people, often women, ironically, of colour. Mm. Now, they argue that anonymity is really important for them because mm-hmm. it allows them to have a presence um, without people tracking them down. But I don't think they're going around being abusive. I would hope, I would imagine they wouldn't, but, you know, I don't know. So I think it, cu- it sort of cuts both ways. But definitely, I think raising the threshold like increasing the sort of information and things like that and making it a bit less easy to just set up an account I think would would help or maybe you have a rule where you're allowed to be anonymous but you have to give out a lot of your information and there's like a three strikes and then if if you if you've got if you've gone past that then your account's disabled or, or they can somebody can you know come not after you and that's a way but they can contact you in a in a real way because they have more than just some made up email yeah because there's a difference between total anonymity and traceability i mean you should be able to use any name you like but i mean ultimately if you're making threats of violence or committing other crimes it should be traceable somehow emma you're also very active on twitter and social media you know it it can be lovely it it can be horrible what's your experience been of the the anonymous twitterer i start every single day by uh, doing what I call my daily block, which is I go, <laughs> I go through, <laughs> I go through all the horrendous messages that I've been sent in the course of the previous twelve hours as I've been asleep, and I get rid of them all. And I, I, I used to just mute people, but I, I've I've completely changed my mind about this, and, and I suppose it, your experience with social media changes the more followers you get. And I think there comes a level where it doesn't matter who you are. There will be people who want to just be vile to you. And Mm. a big lesson I've learned is that actually a lot of it, it's not actually personal. It's just people deciding that they want to just chuck some abuse at at someone today and you'll be the person who's who's getting it today. And it happens the same with pylons. The worst tweets I ever get when there are pylons are from people who don't follow me. They don't know a thing about me. They just make a great big assumption and they're just sort of enjoying the, the abuse train. So I now have a policy where I just block, 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 block. And it makes my day a little bit better and it helps my mental health because it's there comes a point where it, it's just impossible having to mm. read vile things sent to you day in, day out. And, and you don't have to put up with it. I wouldn't put up with it from a stranger in a pub and I don't have to put up with it on my own Twitter account. I am firmly of the belief that people should have to post under their real names on Twitter. And Mm. I think that we would see much better behaviour from people if they could be traceable within seconds. Twitter is a little bit like the man behind the wheel of a car or a woman behind the wheel of a car, is that when you're inside your car... You, you. I mean, I've witnessed people who are the mo- most mild-mannered people I know absolutely mm. lose their shit at someone when they're driving, and it's yes. sort and it's sort it's road rage and it, and it. But it's sort of the same thing on Twitter. I've seen a vicar's wife scream. They're at the worst. Absolute obscenities at someone 
uh, through a closed window in her car because obviously she feels completely safe and yeah. and she's a bit annoyed and she's angry. And she's just absolutely kicked off. But the same the same thing happens on Twitter. It's all to do with perceptions of social space, isn't it? What counts yes. as indoors? What counts as outdoors? You know, yes. is, is screaming is screaming at someone on Twitter like screaming at the telly? Well, no, it it, it isn't really. My other top tip actually is just check what lists you're on because that oh. because there will be people who have put you on lists and it's just for abuse. And then ah. all of and then all of their followers will, who subscribe to that list any time that they, they sort of flag something up that then that's when you get all the people coming in. So it's a re- so check what list you are on and then you block the person who set up the list and that's it you're gone from the list. Top tips. I'm not on any of those. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Or maybe straight white males don't get it. What a thought. My question to you, though, is in the morning, you have to do your blocking session. Yeah. Should it be on you? Should it be on you to do this? Well, no, I mean, I wish, you know, I, I wish it wasn't. But, but you know, p- people can call you every name under the sun and yeah. be as rude to you as they like. And Twitter won't do anything about it. It's really interesting you say that you just block people, Emma, because I think I'm going to start doing that more. I mean, I've muted a lot of people because up until now, I've slightly been, there's been a bit of a convention which says, oh, actually, you shouldn't block people. And it's all about sort of freedom of of speech. You're better just to mute mute people. Or if you block people, then you've given them the satisfaction of knowing that they've gotten under your skin. Mm. But actually, you're probably right. Like, you should just block everything because... I think what people don't realise is when you are getting, uh, you know, sometimes hundreds of messages just giving you the most horrible, slagging you off, just horrible, horrible messages. You're, you know, it does actually really affect your mental health, and it does yes, it trigger does. you. And I hate using that word triggering because I'm always like, but it does. Like when I, I mean, when a pylon, there's like an anatomy of a pylon, or when someone starts sending you abuse. And what's amazing is the physical reaction your body has. Not only does it get into your head, yeah, your entire body reacts like you physically. React, and it's such a horrible feeling. So you're right, Emma. I mean, you shouldn't have to just feel, no, you shouldn't. Oh, I'm just going you shouldn't to... have to put up with it. But oh, but but it's it, it. The other thing about blocking is it encourages people if if they are still in your timeline. Just because you can't see them, it doesn't mean other people can't see them. But it, it's just taking people away. It, it, and I keep coming back to this. If I was standing in a pub and I said something to a friend of mine. I wouldn't expect a uh, hundred, hundred and fifty blokes to come up and shout in my face. So I've absolutely moved on from muting. Just block, 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 block. I love it. Uh, block early, block often. That's going to be my <laughs> yes. Ian Dunt, you're a, the author of the book How to Be a Liberal and a massive liberal. I'm going to guess you think you think that uh, a great big liberal. I'm going to guess that you think that you're a massive liberal. I'm going to guess that you don't think banning anonymity online is a very good idea. No, not really. But then he didn't seem to be suggesting that really. I mean, I I found I was sort of largely unoffended by what he suggested, apart from that thing he said about the reputation score, which just sounded like the most god awful Chinese Communist Party bullshit. And we would be open to abuse by people who are trying to harass someone. The first thing they're going to do in the same way that you know, oh, there's a woman in a superhero movie. So now we're going to try to downvote on Rotten Tomatoes before having seen it. You'd see the same mm-hmm. thing with Rotten I, I don't think that will protect us. I mean, ultimately with this stuff, the, the, the thing that would concern me with anonymity is, um, and Ayusha alluded to this earlier, if you think about someone like, um, like a young Muslim lesbian, right? Mm-hmm. If she wants to go on social media, find accounts, sort of discover about her identity, about who she is, that's going to be very difficult in some communities in this country 
in certain areas by having to reveal your identity. And you'll probably be too uncomfortable about it, even if it was to an NGO, you know, where it's not all being made public. I think you can, you can certainly say the same thing in dictatorships. And you probably say the same thing about whistleblowers. So th- there will be a cost there. And it might be that we go to the point that we just think that cost is something we're willing to bear. But, but I do think we need to be realistic about the fact that there will be a cost there. Um, to me, the solution to this stuff is, and I know this is tiresome and sort of unsatisfying, but it does lie with the social media companies. Now, these guys have been operating under what I think they think are liberal principles of free speech, but are, in fact, I think, libertarian principles of free speech. And by libertarian, what I mean is liberalism, if you strip out all the complexity or the understanding of competing rights. So they've got a situation where they think, well, you're entitled to say whatever. What, what I don't think there's sufficient appreciation of is the fact that harassment and abuse is an attack on someone's free speech. Because an emotionally normal person cannot get up day after day and go through that wave of abuse and get past it. So they are essentially being silenced. And the purpose of that orchestrated harassment is to silence them. Now, it should have struck people like Twitter, people on Facebook, they should have realized during Gamergate, when they saw what was happening to Zoe Quinn, that that was an attempt to silence her. It wasn't about the free speech of the people attacking. It was the other way around. And that you, you come to a conclusion from that, which is not about how you operate in each instance. It's, these are really, really hard things to judge a lot of the time. What it means is you have to put in the funding to have a decent editorial staff on the principle of real free speech, of saying, well, there are times that you're silencing and there are other times people must be allowed to talk and having the confidence and the funding to orchestrate that system. And that, to me, as un- unsatisfying as it is, is the only real solution that works. Finally, should we just throw our hands up in the air, give up and admit that we live in topical quiz show Britain? We've got a quiz show prime minister. What's supposed to be our main political debate show question time now has more in common with entertainment than politics. The most damaging politician of our time, Nigel Farage, built his brand in light entertainment. Maybe this is just where politics happens now and we should give up on the news. Ian, Boris Johnson made seven appearances on Have I Got News For You as he built up his persona. Um, do you think Do you think we really get the uh, the power and the importance of the topical quiz shows? I don't know. I mean, I don't think we can take it too far. It's it's useful as part of the armory, right? But you've always had that, you know, politicians are are sort of more often than we would like. Like lots of the time on the liberal left, you're like, well, basically, I don't understand why there's a manifesto. And surely you sit down, you appraise whether the manifesto fits your thing, and then you vote accordingly. And, and you know, the reality is people are going to be affected by charisma and whether they think that someone might be a good person to have a drink with. And Kuchos are going to play a part in that. In the same way, you know, this goes back, right? So Reagan, you know, came from Hollywood. They think he's a good old boy. You'd have these quotes, you know, from Hayekians that were going, well, we couldn't get anywhere when it was just Hayek talking in an Austrian accent about this sort of <laughs> policy. But once Reagan started talking about it, it was fucking easy. You know, we could get we could get that same message on all these shows, on the morning shows. So you're always going to have that, that sort of dynamic. And it undoubtedly helped Boris Johnson quite a bit. It helped Nigel Farage a little bit. Um, so it's it's part of it. I don't I don't think there's much of a solution to that apart from banning them from shows. I would obviously massively support that in both of those cases, but it may be slightly illiberal of me. Some huge liberal you are. So yeah. I suppose the, interest, the interesting thing there, though, is it's like it's one thing having you know Reagan as the, in the as the kind of palatable figurehead for Hayekian arguments. But Boris Johnson isn't the figurehead for any argument or any meaning at all, is he? He's just the figurehead for Boris Johnson. It's like politics or show business. No, that's he true. Stand but, but, for anything at all. But I'd say Farage is is the opposite of that. 
And and a lot of that, so that comes down to really, and I think this is more for, you know, stuff like Newsnight or or when you're having a one-on-one interview, that for a lot of journalists, our approach has been, you know, you've got to interview these guys. They've got to be exposed to the sort of lives of exposure. But there is another question, and I agree with that, by the way, you do. I mean, of course, you have to interview politicians. It doesn't matter how much you don't like them. But there is another question, which is, what is the frame that you use for your questioning when you interview them? Do you accept their starting assumptions, for instance, about immigration? For instance, about sort of um, benefits tourism. or do, And also, what are the questions that you ask them? Most of the time that Nigel Farage went on a program to talk about stuff, they always asked him questions that were which he wanted to be fucking asked mm. about the EU and about immigration. You never really heard people going for him on NHS policy or on foreign policy outside of those areas. The stuff that these guys tend to wither when they're not allowed their sort of like really obvious totemic issues to discuss so a lot of it comes down to not do you have them on but what do you do with them when they have come on mm. Cheap questions would be better if we treated it like a quiz show and awarded points just <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of this one um you know um, sarah vine and julia hartley brewer lost and uh, lawrence fox won Oh, wow. better. what a fucking horrible visual example you have selected <laughs> to demonstrate your argument just trying to be accurate. <laughs> Aisha, you've got on Have I Got News for you, both before and, and during the lockdown. Do you feel the pressure to perform at a kind of, you know, uh, but, you know, obviously it's entertainment. So you're there to kind of like make Friday night tolerable while everybody's having their, their takeout curry kind of thing. But do you, does it feel like there's a kind of a political dimension there that you have to perform in as well? Well, I think I've done Have I Got News for you three times now so i'll be launching my leadership campaign very soon (laughs) of course you feel the pressure to perform you know have something like have i got news for you it's such a you know big show you know i sort of grew up watching have i got news for you so it it feels like when you when you do go on it it's a great privilege to to be on it and you do feel the pressure to perform to yeah mainly to try and be funny i think the worst thing is when people you look something that have i got news for you it is entertainment Mm. you're not really there to go and lecture them about the squeeze middle or the labor manifesto (laughs) or kind of like you know an economy that works for working people that's not why you're kind of there but 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 what you can try and do is i sort of sometimes think you know good humor has a political truth to it and you know sometimes obviously you're you know you can make a point but do it in a in a kind of funny way so that's where the, the politics comes through I mean, I think these look again. I think we're we're trying to find ways to blame what why we have Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. Mm. You know, is it the fault of Have I Got News for You? No, <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you, Andrew. I don't think it is the fault. Of well, I, 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 I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you something well, that's interesting here. I I know the producer of uh, Have I Got News for You when Boris was first put on. And he has told me many times it's his biggest regret in his professional life. Sure, mm. but I, I just genuinely do not think that Boris Johnson became prime minister and won eighty uh, eighty seat majority. No, but I think I think I think it was a contributory factor in him becoming London mayor, and then you can draw that line going forwards. 
Yes. And I think the difficult, uncomfortable truth for us big old liberals is as much as we do not like Boris Johnson, we don't like the policies, we don't like what he stands for. He is, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, he is incredibly, for a lot of people, charismatic, attractive, mm. yep. funny. Yep. I mean, I have, I know people who have seen him do his after dinner speeches. They didn't particularly like him, but he's a bit like a stand up comedian. He can knock out a cracking gig. Yep. Like he's got a set, he can knock it out. He has has got confidence he has got charisma way more than any other politician does at the moment and the problem is for the left is that progressives have not managed to churn out any human being that has any no. scintilla of charisma yeah. and that's what we've got to crack instead of yeah. trying to ban have i got news for you nobody would say that <laughs> it, it's interesting because when when you look at keir starmer uh, on on paper, there, there is no comparison between him and Boris Johnson in terms of competency and the person who you probably trust the most as a prime minister. But it doesn't matter because Keir Starmer is, you know, for, for, and I used to work for Keir Starmer when I was a young article clerk. So I have actually worked with him and he's the single Ooh. most, he's the single most impressive legal person I, I ever worked with. But he is a bit boring and he has he isn't a personality the way boris johnson is and i think that's going to be a real problem and i think if labor want to look at what they need to do yes they they've got the right guy leading the party but they need to teach him skills my campaign to make boring the new interesting continues oh, <laughs> i i love boring sensible people I love. That. I mean, I, trust me, I well, you're in the right place for that. Right <laughs> That's all I want. I just want someone sensible in charge. That's it. That's all I want. We've come to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for our panel's escape routes from politics. What are the TV, films, books, or whatever you like that are tearing their minds away from Carrie Simmons' gold wallpaper and diamond toilet? <laughs> Ian, how about you? What's your escape route this week? Oh, it's the album The Long Goodbye by Riz Ahmed. Now, Riz Ahmed's getting a lot yeah. of chatter at the moment, obviously, for um, for the two films, two very good films um, he's made sort of in the, that have come out in the last sort of few months. Not enough people talk about his music, and his music is astonishingly good. I have to give a warning on The Long Goodbye, which is that it does feature several instances of spoken word, which I cannot fucking tolerate. But <laughs> podcasting, they're used to it. No, you know, it's the kind of poetry, just like, oh, just please, please stop it. I beg you to stop. But when that does stop, what you've got is just song off each and every fucking song on that album is an absolute masterpiece. And in a really old school way, it's a fucking concept album. It's, a, it's an actual album that has a coherence to it. And the concept is really sort of treating sort of Britain's relationship with um, Asians as a kind of abusive emotional relationship. So all done through the structure of this abusive romantic relationship. It is fucking genius. And each and every track on it will get you up on your feet dancing away. It is very, very good indeed. And I recommend it strongly. There was a particular press picture of um, something. Uh, he, he was doing some kind of promotional activity with, I think it was We Transfer or one of these people. And he was dressed in like incredibly opulent sort of, I think it's Pakistani game, not entirely sure. He's British Pakistani, isn't he? And I saw it out the corner of my eye and I thought, oh my God, he's the new Doctor Who. They've cast him as the new Doctor Who. I was so excited. <laughs> but like an eighth of his and I realised that he wasn't the new Doctor Who. Emma, what's your escape route from uh, politics at the moment? It's Lego, it's isn't it? Tell us it's Lego. Le it's always Lego. <laughs> 
it's always Lego. Yes, I, I, I devote an hour of every single day to making Lego. At the moment, I'm, I've got two things on. Well, I've got three things on the go. I've got, I've got the main build for Relax with Bricks. Uh, which is okay. I'm doing the Batman Clayface Invasion, which was a set that was wow. gifted to me by Sue Perkins, and um, I'm I'm making my own version of a a, a New York subway station. It's going to be like a cross section through a subway station, but in Lego, and I'm uh, also still going with the enormous project that is that is the Liza Millennium Falcon. The Liza Millennium Falcon. The, the Liza Millennium Millennium Falcon. Yeah, it's it is the you know that they that Lego put out the giant Millennium Falcon. Yes, I'm doing. I refuse to do anything in grey. So I'm doing the Liza Millennium Falcon, which is going to be a vision in red and gold, and have a disco in the middle of it. <laughs> or am I losing my mind? That sounds incredible. <laughs> broke down the I was going to ask you. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the Death Spa. Your yes, uh, your Death, Death Star. Wellness. Yes, the Death Spa. I I again. I I wanted to do the Death Star, but I refused to do anything in grey. So uh, I made the Death Spa. It's got a C three PO is administering Botox to a stormtrooper while another <laughs> stormtrooper is in a hot tub behind him. Uh, there's a rumpus room. Emperor Palpatine is is on the decks. I love doing discos. I've got a I've got a pub room where there's a stag do going on a stormtrooper stag do, and that one of them is puking down a hole in the death spot. Right. And I've actually got puke going through the decks. Um, this is what we want. Yeah, this is what we want. This is lose what we weight want. in the trash compactor. And and, and the the top layer is is um, HR because I, I've all it's always bothered me it's always bothered me that there's no human resources department on on the death star so I've given them one it's a good job somebody's thinking about these things Can Aisha, I mean, about we've you? heard a lot of answers to that escape route question but that was fucking majestic <laughs> pretty good oh, and it also pretty- I have I have been covid compliant there is hand sanitizer throughout the death spa <laughs> surely it's hand sanitizer I'm glad to hear this Aisha the rumpus room sounds very good I, well i am going to beat that because i've just finished reading a really good book called the never ending summer oh, by, uh, oh that was seamless that was seamless and it is absolutely cracking it yeah. is an absolutely brilliant read highly recommend it emma you're an absolute genius loved it loved it loved it thank you and in terms of music ian talked about sort of getting up and dancing Oh my God, I have been obsessed by something called House Gospel Choir. Um, They are amazing. It's kind of like electrifying house meets the gospel experience. It is unbelievable. They are so, so good. And they have this, like, they have a huge gathering. They have about 150 people. But then in lockdown, they had to stop um, coming together and then they went all virtual. They've got about 300 people involved and they record it all with this amazing sort of a cappella uh, virtual technology. And they have been doing the most amazing mashups and the most amazing things online. Um, they are brilliant. Highly recommend it. Their music is so good and they're going on tour soon so you can catch them live. Highly recommend them. They are um, like proper banging tunes. 
Sounds amazing. Well, mine is much simpler and on a smaller scale. It's the brilliant new album by Field Music. It's called Flat White Moon. Field Music, if you know them, they sort of take conventional rock music, take it to bits and rearrange the pieces in a different order, a bit like Emma and a Lego. They, it sort of feels like rock music, but it doesn't sound like rock music. Or maybe it sounds like rock music. It doesn't feel like it. It is both familiar and completely unfamiliar at the same time. Uh, this new album, Flat White Moon, it's, you know, it's uh, songs of everyday experience fed through this kind of strange decay construction machine it's beautiful it's optimistic it's drums and bass and guitars it's not like millions of synthesizers anything like that and yet it sounds so strange and alien and yet optimistic and jolly and um i've been absolutely delighted by it so give that one a go as well flat white moon by field music and that's the end of this week's bunker so thank you ian dunce thank you very much thank you aisha hazarika thank you very much and thank you special guest emma kennedy no no thank you Ah, you're welcome back anytime. (laughs) Uh, We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. So do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever your favourite app is. If you enjoyed the show, you can, of course, back us on Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook for details or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. There are all sorts of lovely things when you sign up. Backers get an honorary salute on the show. And here are some now. Hello, and best wishes from me to Sarah Patey, Rodney Semple, Helena Shepherd, and Ruth Crowell. And it's a big thanks from me to Paula Broadbent, Stuart Hoddenot, Dan Ferret, and Elizabeth Bragonia. And finally, thanks from me to Sarah Thane, Ben Wiltshire, Irene with an accent on the E, and Chris Farker. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Aisha Hazarika and Ian Dunt. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jan Lusofrenievich, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.